Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Annie. And I'm Ella. And this is Undiscovered, a podcast about the backstories of science. Sheila Paddock has always obsessed about whether her work was important. I mean, always there's this little voice in the back of my brain saying, well, what are you doing for the world? I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, but it's really true. Sheila's a biologist. She's a professor at Duke University. And she studies an animal called the mantis shrimp. Yeah, more on them in a second. But she thinks this, what are you doing for the world question, it comes from her family. My older sister teaches developmentally disabled preschool children, and my younger sister teaches STEM classes in a public high school in Maine. Her mom taught high school Latin and French, and for the teachers in Sheila's family, it's pretty clear what they're doing for the world. This is not some kind of abstract idea. They are shaping the next generation. It's normal dinnertime conversation for them. And then at some point in this conversation, the three teachers turn to Sheila, and it's like, so Sheila... How's it going with the shrimp? Yeah, yeah, no pressure. So Sheila says the pivotal moment that helped her family understand just what exactly she decided to do with her life, it came in grad school. Her research got written up in the New York Times. And when they read this stuff in the New York Times and they realized, oh, it's in the section about discoveries, like new discoveries, they had this aha moment <laughs> of, oh, that's what she's doing. She's discovering stuff. Sheila has made a career discovering stuff about mantis shrimp and other equally bizarre creatures. She deeply believes that what she's doing is making the world a better place. And then, in December of 2015, this happens. It was my birthday weekend. (laughs) You can probably tell this doesn't end well. So, Sheila, she's in the lab. She's answering some emails before she heads home for the weekend. And then she gets one. That had in the header, good morning, America, ABC News query. An ABC reporter was emailing to get Sheila's reaction. How did Sheila feel about her research being put in a waste book? Now, at this point, Sheila had no idea that her work had been put in a waste book. This was news to her. But she knew what a waste book was. A waste book, or or sometimes it's called a waste report. Or an oversight report. Right, lots of names. It's a document that a member of Congress puts out, basically a big list of projects funded with federal money that this congressperson thinks didn't deserve that money. And that's what had happened to Sheila. So a U.S. senator had learned about her shrimp research, decided this was a waste of federal money, put it in his waste book. Uh, When I read that email, I have to say my stomach sort of fell through the floor. Because she knew what was coming. You will not believe what your government is wasting your tax dollars on. 100 examples of government waste. Duke University got money to actually pit shrimp against each other. Price tag, $707,000. This stuff, you can't make it up. Today on Undiscovered, a shot is fired, an accusation is made and answered. We've got a story about what happens when scientists and politicians go head to head. On one side, we've got the scientists saying that politicians in D.C., they don't understand or they willfully misunderstand science. They aren't funding science enough. And on the other side, the politicians are saying, hey, we're spending billions of dollars a year on scientific research. What are we getting out of it? Well, today, those two sides are going to meet in a marbled office building on Capitol Hill as Sheila Paddock comes face to face with the senator who called her science waste. That's coming up on Undiscovered.
the animal that got Sheila into this whole mess is a truly bizarre creature. I mean, mantis shrimp are weird. Yeah, so you think shrimp and you think the little pink thing with the tail that's partially peeled on your cocktail plate or whatever if you eat those. And these animals, mantis shrimp, are really not shrimp. Mantis shrimp are stomatopods, technically. The great granddaddy of the stomatopods and the great granddaddy of your modern cocktail shrimp. They diverged about 400 million years ago. And according to Sheila, these mantis shrimp, they kind of look like cartoon characters. I don't know how else to put it. You showed me some pictures of these, Annie. Oh They're my! Crazy. Wow. They literally come in every color of the rainbow. There's this one species in Florida that's hot pink with flashing spots. The shrimp in Sheila's lab, they're kind of a light grassy green with speckles. And they have googly eyes. So they have these oblong eyes on stalks that track you, each eye separately. So you walk up to this multicolored thing. It, it comes right up to look right back at you. And moving both eyes around, and you just know right away that this is like an alternative life form (laughs) that you're dealing with. These mantis shrimp will stare you down with their googly eyes because they're not afraid of you. And that's because they're packing lethal weapons. They have this mouth part. It's a mouth part, but it kind of looks like an arm. Mm. And it ends in this rounded hammer shape. And the shrimp use this hammer to smash open snail shells because this is their food. They wield these hammers at accelerations as fast as a bullet coming out of the muzzle of a gun. And they do this underwater. Sheila says when you walk by the aquariums in the lab, the shrimp might come out and smash the tank when you go by. You might hear them pounding some snails. It's pretty, there are lots of crackles and pops, especially people just fed them snails. So like a bunch of clicking, but imagine you're, you're a shrimp or a snail, big boom. Yeah, for you. So, so the study that landed Sheila in the waste book, it was actually by one of her grad students. And it was about those lethal weapons that the shrimp have. Mantis shrimp fight a lot. And most of these fights are over housing. In Sheila's lab, housing means a little burrow made out of a sawed-off PVC pipe. And watching these fights, like with your naked eye, you have no idea what is happening. You see these two little shrimp. They're about two inches long, bright green and they kind of run into each other and something really fast that you can't see happens and they run away and then they do it again and they do it again. And you kind of start holding your breath to see what's gonna happen because they're zooming back and forth and finally all of a sudden it's just over. And nobody's dead. No, you know, nobody's been hurt. They just settled it. So someone gets their own territory and the other one is like, never mind, I quit. (laughs) The study that ended up in the waste book was about what was happening in those fights. It turns out that shrimp are using those hammers to repeatedly bash each other on a super strong armored tailplate. Boom, 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 really fast. Yeah, more like... And the shrimp that lands the most hits wins the real estate, which raises some interesting questions. Like, what is this armored tailplate made out of? How is it that it's enduring so many hits without being damaged? It suggests some pretty cool engineering applications. The waste book, however, did not exactly describe the study like this. This year, we have a shrimp fight club. Yeah, they decided to go with shrimp fight club. Duke University got money to actually pit shrimp against each other. That is Senator Jeff Flake on Fox News' On the Record. Jeff Flake is a Republican senator from Arizona, and he's the one who put Sheila's research into his 2015 waste book, his list of the most wasteful uses of taxpayer money that year. And so you know, Senator Flake's office declined our requests for an interview both with the senator and a senior staff member. Jeff Flake is a fiscal conservative. He's a crusader against congressional earmarking, which is, you know, this practice of sneaking goodies into the budget for your constituents. 
He is frugal and very proud of that fact. A few years ago, he reportedly said he had only paid for three haircuts in his life. His wife, Cheryl, actually cuts his hair. And he loves puns, which are all over the wastebook. Flake's wastebook is straight up campy. In 2015, the full title was The Wastebook, The Farce Awakens. Huh? Pretty good. Okay. The Star Wars reboot was just about to come out, and, and the whole report is Star Wars themed. Here is Jeff Flake introducing his wastebook on the Senate floor. It's my hope, uh, my only hope, that this report gives Congress something to chewy on. Chewy? Chewbacca? The end of bad puns. Oh, know. God. <laughs> Before uh, debt and deficit uh, saddles taxpayers uh, and they finally strike back. The cover of the wastebook? It features a cartoon of Flake wielding the lightsaber with which he is presumably ready to laze the fat from the federal budget. Flip to page 78, and you will find a full three-page write-up of Sheila's Shrimp Fight Club, plus a price tag, 707000 taxpayer dollars. So one of the things I've noticed about the waste books is there's kind of this, like, there's a lot of jokes. Yeah. That's Brian Berkey, former congressional staffer. The point of those is kind of a, it's, it's written from the senator, right? So it's showing their personalities a little bit. Um, but B, it's trying to, you know, if somebody's going to take time out of their day to read about the government, you know, it's helpful for them to be a little lighter. Brian Berkey did not help write Jeff Flake's waste book, but he's helped write other waste reports for Senators Tom Coburn and James Lankford, both from Brian's home state of Oklahoma. These days, Brian's executive director of Restore Accountability, a nonprofit that educates young people about the national debt. And Brian points out it is not just science spending that gets criticized in waste books. In Flakes the Farce Awakens, science projects are about a quarter of the entries. As for what counts as waste? Coburn used to say, you know, if 90 percent of the people would agree that this is not a priority for the federal government, then we'll include it. And, you know, it might turn out that, you know, the other 10 percent are those that listen to your podcast. Um, and, and that's OK. That, that's fine. Brian says basically, look, we waste book writers, we're not anti-science, but budgeting is about priorities. And the senators Brian worked for, they wanted federally funded research to advance national interests, economic development, for example, or national security or health. And he says, yes, the government should totally fund science. We don't come to this from the perspective that we're a bunch of Luddites that don't understand, you know, the importance of basic science and research, right? But maybe money's being spent in the wrong places. A few years ago, the NIH director said, you know, maybe we'd have an Ebola vaccine right now if it weren't for all of those budget cuts over the years. So Brian says, okay, not enough money for Ebola. But we have money for the stuff in the waste book. And it's not meant to, you know, pit one against the other necessarily, but that's kind of Congress's job, right? Budgeting is our job. Resources are limited. We have a $20 trillion national debt. Some of these projects hiding behind the veil that all science is good science is just, um, you know, we just don't agree with that. And this is basically the message that Senator Jeff Flake took to ABC in December 2015 when he released his waste book. A lot of those studies are very legitimate and useful, but a good number of them, you think, who in the world thought up this stuff? But somebody's got to okay this. Who's the person (laughs) that's saying okay to this stuff? Who's writing the check? Great question from Greta Van Susteren. She was a Fox anchor at the time. Who is writing the checks? Where does your lab get money? Yeah, so I'll walk you through this process. 
Sheila paid for this so-called shrimp fight club with money from the National Science Foundation. The NSF funds basic science and engineering research, which means it's research that's not geared toward any immediate application. So if you want some of that sweet, sweet NSF cash, what you got to do, you type up your grant proposal, send it to the NSF. NSF gathers the top scientists in your field. They rank the proposals and give out the money. And chances are you walk away with nothing. Because three quarters of NSF proposals, they don't get any money. Yeah, and in Sheila's field, it's more like 90% don't get any money. The competition is extremely fierce. It is very, very difficult to get a grant. Okay, but Sheila does. She gets a grant. She gets a grant for $900,000 to be distributed over five years. So she's basically rich. Right. Except now she has to knock off $400,000 ish, roughly $400,000, which is going to Sheila's university for overhead. Her lab building. Her utilities. Now she's got about $500,000 left, which works out to... Divide by five years. Divide by five years. $100,000 a year. That goes to pay a postdoc, a grad student, pay for everybody's conference travel, a a summer program that brings grade school teachers to Sheila's lab. And it pays for a shrimp fight club. Yeah. How much was that? What I can tell you is it's in the order of only a couple thousand dollars, if that much. This was one of the things that really irked Sheila about the waste book. It made it sound like she'd spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on just one study, when instead she was spending it on multiple studies, on training young scientists, on having this program where she mentors grade school teachers. And so sitting there at her desk on her birthday weekend, she had a choice to make. She could ignore the waste book, wait for the news cycle to move on. But she didn't. She did not want to slink away like a mantis shrimp who just lost a fight, a burrowless mantis shrimp. She decided to fire back at Senator Flake. Strike back even. Make the case for why mantis shrimp matter. And then it becomes something constructive, not that miserable sinking feeling where you have to hide or just feeling like, man, what is up with politics? Why am I, you know, the focus of this now? It's just so stupid at some level. But I felt like I deserve to have a, have a chance to explain why what we do is important for the broader goal of explaining why science is important to the world. Sheila drafted a statement, Duke splashed it on their website, and it explained how her research could have military applications. Blake's response, here he is speaking to KFYI's Mike Broomhead. And they tried to make some connection between this and, and uh, helping our troops. <laughs> I just failed to I see it. And I don't know if you're, war with shrimp. I don't know if you're supposed to be talking about this because we all know the first rule of Shrimp Fight Club is you yeah, don't so talk about talk Shrimp about Fight Club. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Bad Brad Pitt's going to beat me up. Oh, my Sheila made a statement. Flake fired back, and she figured that was the end of it. And then she got another email, an invitation to Washington D.C. Would she come to Capitol Hill and present her research to members of Congress? Coming up, the tensest, weirdest science fair you've ever attended as so-called spendthrift scientists meet Congress. And Sheila confronts the senator who called her work a waste of taxpayer money. I mean, I almost passed out. I freaked out. That's after the break on Undiscovered. Okay, the trip to D.C. 
three months after her research showed up in Senator Flake's wastebook, Sheila Paddock got an invitation to D.C. It was for a reception, hosted by two science advocacy groups. And the idea was researchers who'd been singled out in these waste reports, they'd go to the Hill, they would set up in the Senate office building, and Congress people would drop by, and these scientists would explain the value of their work, basically make the case that the waste book got them wrong. So in April 2016, Sheila is standing in this beautiful marble room in front of a poster about mantis shrimp. Naturally. And she's surrounded by all these so-called pilfers of the public purse. Mm -hmm. A few feet away, there's the scientist who put monkeys in hamster balls on treadmills. Also the public health researcher who inspired this headline, Feds wonder why fat girls can't get dates. And then there's Sheila. You know, one thing that we heard a lot was, please do not get mad at the people who show up. Flake wasn't the only politician on the invite list. In the last decade, waste books have taken off in D.C. There's a handful of congressmen who now publish their own takes on the waste report with slightly different spins. Senator James Lankford has his federal fumbles. John McCain has America's most wasted. It's Rand Paul's The Waste Report, Steve Russell's Waste Watch. All had been invited. All of them, you might have noticed, are Republican. But that wasn't always the case. The guy in whose footsteps all waste book writers follow? The founding father of the waste book. He was a Democrat. Senator William Proxmire from Wisconsin. Proxmire is someone who is unafraid to take strong stances. He is an early advocate of campaign finance reform. Uh, he was a very early critic of the Vietnam War. That science historian Melinda Baldwin, she's written about Proxmire and early science funding fights. He's also a, a diet and jogging enthusiast. Melinda says one time during this debate about whether or not the Senate should approve funds for a new gym, Proxmire gets up and he says, that's a waste of taxpayer money. None of you need a gym. You should all learn to jog and I will teach you how. <laughs> Proxmire actually had a book about jogging. You can do it! <laughs> Exclamation point. Senator Proxmire's exercise, diet, and relaxation plan. But that moment, I think, was very much in, in Proxmire's grand tradition because the other thing that he's really famous for is being an aggressive critic of government spending. Proxmire hated waste. He wanted to root it out. And in 1975, he hits on a brilliant idea. The Golden Fleece Awards. The Golden Fleece Awards work like this. Every month, Proxmire will award a prize. Imagine prize in air quotes here because it's not a prize. It's a badge of dishonor. A prize to the most egregious use of taxpayer money. And these prizes get attention. Because the press releases, kind of funny. They're funny and a little mean. The punniness of Flake's wastebook, that is classic Proxmire. And Proxmire goes after science. And Melinda says it's not that Proxmire was against government funding of science per se. It's just that he didn't want to fund stuff that seemed like it would never pay off. And I asked Melinda, we've been doing this waste report thing for four decades. Has the argument changed? Are we just dancing the same dance? I think it's kind of the same dance. I think that in a way we're all still dancing to Proxmire's tune. So Sheila's come all the way up to D.C. for this very awkward science fair. Very awkward. And she's there to make the case that mantis shrimp matter. And by this point, she's spent a lot of time thinking about how you break out of this dance. How do you talk to a senator who's called your work waste? And she thought, it comes down to what you value. People value science for different reasons for very different reasons. Some people value science because we discover new things about the world. Other people feel that science needs to be directed towards solving human problems. And Sheila has to figure out 
what kind of person is Senator Flake? What do he and the Wastebook writers value? I think that that they fall on the end of the spectrum that science should be done to solve human problems. That's that's what I really spent a lot of time thinking about is the real tangible justification that someone like Senator Flake could listen to and could understand. That's assuming he even showed. Jill had been told somebody from Senator Flake's office would come to the event. I was expecting, you know, some kind of staffer. The intern. <laughs> yeah, the intern, right? And so I'm sitting there talking to somebody, and I look up towards the entrance, and I see Senator Flake, who's actually quite a distinctive-looking person. Senator Flake is tall, tan, got a beaming smile, and a dimpled chin. And I, I mean, I almost passed out. I freaked out. And I, whoever I was talking to, who actually had some stature of their own, was like, are you okay? What's wrong? And, and you know, it, I mean, I'm not like, I, Senator Flake's just another human per, you know, human being. I, I wasn't actually afraid of him. It was just, you know, that, that through this whole process, this name, you know, disembodied from this person had sort of loomed so large that to actually see him walking in the room really it's like freaked he exists. Me out. Yeah. So I'm I'm like, I'm trying to get myself back to the present, to talking to the person who I was presenting to. And I see him slowly weaving his way towards me. So, yeah. So gradually he made his way uh, to my station. (laughs) What'd you say? Like, what happened? Well, he came up and was very polite. And I said, you know, may I present to you the work? And he said, sure. And here's what Sheila told him. These shrimp, these fight club mantis shrimp, they are clobbering us when it comes to engineering, outperforming our best systems by orders of magnitude. So first, these shrimp, they wield their hammers at accelerations on par with a bullet coming out of a gun, at accelerations that outpace missiles and race cars. And they don't use combustion. Just the system of springs and latches in their arm. A system that they deploy over and over and over without it breaking. And they do this in water, at tiny scales that human engineers can't replicate. So I started by just showing him what engineering is not doing today and what biology has been doing for millions of years. And then she really sells it. She explains what this could do for humans. She explained how mantis shrimp Even though they're wielding their deadly hammers at bullet-like accelerations, they avoid this weird fluid dynamics thing called cavitation. Usually when you're moving as fast as a mantis shrimp does underwater, you create this area of low pressure. And the water literally vaporizes in that spot. It forms a little bubble called a cavitation bubble. And this bubble implodes in a burst of light creating heat equivalent to the surface of the sun. Cavitation will wear away the steel on a boat propeller. It's the bane of naval engineers. But mantis shrimp avoid it until the final moment when their hammer hits that snail shell and the shell cracks in a burst of heat and light. How do they do it? Or take the the tailplate that these shrimp use in fights. This tailplate is taking blows like a punching bag over and over. But unlike a punching bag, it's light. That's why engineers are actually using this mantis shrimp research to develop better materials for for sports helmets or for better armor. And, you know, I have to say, you know, I guess we all know this, that a lot of times it really helps 
to have a conversation face to face with people. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I I think we all know that, but it's good to be reminded. And he, you know, he real I really felt like he was listening or else he was a good faker, but I think he was listening. So Sheila goes for it. And I said, you know, is any of this worthwhile to you? And he pointed to the part of her poster about human applications. And he said that that seemed worthwhile to him. But here's the thing. Senator Flake, he wants these human applications. But if he wants this particular human application, this bio-inspired armor, you only get that if you gamble in the first place, that investigating an animal as weird as the mantis shrimp might pay off. Because what we found out about the mantis shrimp, we didn't find it out because some scientist was looking for a human application. We know it because Sheila got curious. It took a scientist's eye to go in and reach for new knowledge. How fast is that animal going? How much force is it producing? Is that really a cavitation bubble collapsing to help break open the snail shell? This was one of Sheila's main points. If you want applications, you're going to have to invest in curiosity, too. And we are. The federal government puts something like $34 billion a year into basic research. So it is totally fair to ask, what kind of return are we getting on that investment? Like, what is the number? I think it would be very dangerous for economists to tell you that there's a number. That is Paula Stefan, professor of economics at Georgia State University, who could not give us a number. Paula's like, look, you want a rate of return? You've got to know what the benefits are, and you also have to know what the cost is. And for something like a stock market investment, that's not too hard to figure out. But figuring that out for science? Yeah, good luck. I mean, the perfect example that everyone in my field brings up is the atomic clock. In 1879, a guy named Lord Kelvin writes that maybe we could use atoms to tell time. Genius. But it takes about seven decades before a physicist named Robbie actually figures out how to do it. And voila, the atomic clock. You know, most people, I think, who turn on their GPS device don't have a clue that we would not have GPS if it weren't for the atomic clock. This becomes a problem because if we want to calculate how much money went into the invention of GPS... Like a truly transformative technology. Do I have to go all the way back to Lord Kelvin? Or you can take Sheila's research. So a decade ago, a materials scientist named David Casalis, he takes a look at Sheila's research, thinks, what the heck is that shrimp hammer made out of? He spends five years finding out, and last fall, David got a patent for a mantis shrimp-inspired material that he says is 50% more damage-resistant than what Boeing is using in its 787 airplane. And he wants to sell it to companies like Airbus. And if he succeeds, Sheila's research becomes another one of these success stories. It becomes an example that science advocates can cite whenever a new book comes out. They can point to this and say, hey, look, investing in curiosity, that can pay off big. Just like it did with the MRI, the laser, and oh yeah, the internet. Right, the internet. Good one. Well, it's very tempting to give all those examples, and I've given you some examples today. Paula again. Paula says, beware the anecdotes. The problem, though, with those studies is that they've just been selected on winners, you know? And there are a number of research projects out there that don't have a happy ever after ending, so to speak. So, no. There is never going to be 
one magic number that scientists and politicians can all point to and say, yeah, that is the value of science. This is how much we should spend. Right, which means these funding debates end up playing out in politics. And they're about what you value. You know, how much do you value the search for new cures or understanding the structure of space-time or growing the GDP? That's why budgeting is hard. Because we all have our own answers to those questions, including Sheila. Why does Sheila Paddock value science? You know, the answer to this question has been a journey because it has actually taken me most of my career to have the confidence to say this, that the knowledge that we generate in my lab is why it's important. It's that we have explored biology, we have tested it, we have, we have put it to the most rigorous scientific analysis that we possibly can. And from that, we have been able to say new things about the world. And that is what I think the value of what I do is. A month after their conversation, Senator Flake released another waste book. It's science-themed, titled 20 Questions, government studies that will leave you scratching your head. The cover features the latest poster children of wasteful science spending. No boxing shrimp, but there's a drunk songbird and a sexy goldfish. But inside, the writers do something interesting. They have a list, 20 questions that they hope will guide science funding decisions. Questions designed to get at what the value of science is. Will this research advance science in a meaningful way? Will the study enhance technology or advance medicine? Will it expand our understanding of the universe? They're good questions. They're continuing the conversation. And then you flip the page. And you read about how one researcher spent part of a $1 million grant to find out where it hurts most to get stung by a bee. And another round of the dance begins. Undiscovered is reported and produced by me, Annie Minoff. And me, Ella Fetter. Our editor is Christopher Intagliata. Thanks also to Daniel Dana, Christian Scotta, and Brandon Ector. Shrimp Sounds were recorded by Leah Fitchett and Martha Munoz. We had fact-checking help from Michelle Harris. Original music by Daniel Peter Schmidt. I am Robot and Proud, wrote our theme. Special thanks to our launch partner, the John Templeton Foundation. You can find more Undiscovered at undiscoveredpodcast.org or on Twitter at UndiscoveredPod. And a tip of the hat to everyone who reviewed us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Rockstein, Jeeves, uh, Ella's mom. Mm. It helps us out and we really appreciate it. Thanks, mom. See you next week. 